Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. How are you on this fine June Sunday? School just ended on Friday. Teachers and kids in the house are excited. This teacher is elated, right? I see some of you excited. Parents, you're not as excited as we are. Tough. You have a good eight, I don't know, nine or ten weeks with those children. You better find a lot of good activities for them. Keep them busy. Wow, you're all like depressed this morning. <laughs> well, I am excited. Where is my clicker? We are starting a new series today. And we're picking a new book. Ruth went so well that we said, you know what? Let's pick a new book. So we sat down and we talked about what book to do. And to be honest, I was a little afraid of rolling into doing one of Paul's letters, one of Paul's epistles. That'll be next at some point in the future. But as you can see on the screen there, we're going to be in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah. All right. So if you have your Bibles, you may want to open up. We're going to start in the beginning, just kind of like we did in the other uh, in the last series on Ruth. Although this one has 13 chapters, this will not be a 13-week series on the book. So we will move around. I will not go verse by verse. And you'll see today I'm going to get into the second chapter. We're going to have some fun, though. Isn't Nehemiah like, it, just a wonderful name? Like, if I honestly, if I was to have a, another kid, if I was to have another child and it was a boy, wouldn't Nehemiah be a pretty cool name? Right? Just hypothetically, if, if Megan was pregnant with, um, you know, a, another child, wouldn't that be a great name if it was a boy? Yeah, right? Right? Call him Nemo, right? Like little nickname. That's what I was thinking. You know, Jameson's in the tub last night. I'm like, Nemo. Like, you know, obviously I'm in the series. So I'm like, that would be a cool name. I'm sure some of his friends called him Nemo. Maybe that's where Disney got it from. Well, obviously, as you can tell, yes, Megan is pregnant. So... <laughs> And I, I promise on the delivery day, I've talked before how hellacious the delivery was, more on me than even her. She had the easy part. I was stricken with Lyme disease, and I almost died. I was in the hospital. So I promised her that I'll make sure that I'm 100% and ready to go. So I'm, I'm feeling good. How are you feeling? You feeling all right? Well, I'm, I'm doing well. So, all right, yeah, so we are excited. We just wanted to announce that to the church, not like, you know, many of you heard, I guess, through the grapevine, how things get around in a small little church. So we are excited, though. Uh, I want to start with a, a, a little story to get us into this book and in our study of this um, wonderful character, really characters. Uh, there was a Supreme Court justice in the 1900s. His name was Oliver Wendell Holmes. And he was on a train. He was on the uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania Railroad. And he was traveling, and the conductor is coming around asking for tickets, so he comes up to Wendell Holmes, my brother is an attorney, he went to law school, I don't know if you know this story, you know, uh, and he is, uh, he's traveling on them, the conductor comes up to him, and he says, you know, Mr. Holmes, can I have your ticket, please? And there's Holmes, and he's looking in his pockets, and he's fumbling around, he grabs his wallet, and he's, you know, trying to find his ticket, and he, he's, you know, he's all upset, I, I don't know where it is, has to be somewhere, and the conductor's like, listen, Mr. Holmes, I know who you are. It's okay. You'll probably find it by the end of the trip. Not a big deal. Trust you. Know who you are. And then the man, Holmes, is still looking for it. And he's like, listen, son, you don't understand something. 
It's not that I don't know where my ticket is. I don't know where I'm going. The guy had no idea where he was actually traveling to. And I said, you know what? That's a cool little story about us as a people. We need vision and we need to know where we are going. This is a book that lays out vision. It's Visioneering 101. Nehemiah is one of the greatest leaders in the Bible. His name, interesting enough, I didn't even know this until studying commentaries and reading books. His name is not even mentioned in the New Testament. But he's an incredible example of what a leader is in his day. A man that understands the will of God, what God wants, and where the people of God need to go. We as a people, city on a hill, community church... Our little area, our town, our city, this island, we need to know who we are and where we are going. And you, in your personal lives, with your families, you need to know where you're going. You need to know where your kids are going. It's our job. And I have to start, and you know, some of you maybe are like, oh, I have to wade through a little history. How can I get into a book like this without setting the historical context? So we all know where we are. Are you ready? It's a wide swath of history, but I'm going to go really fast, I promise. I'm going to take about five minutes, and I'm going to lay out and lead you right up to who this guy is and what, in essence, is going on. So when you walk out, you go, oh, you know what? I've read the story before. Maybe you're somebody, you've been in you know, church your whole life. You've read the Bible. You know who Nehemiah is. Well, this will give you maybe a little more context as to what is really going on in his life and the life of the Israelites around him. Well, Jewish history, history starts uh, with Abraham. It starts in 2000 B.C., but it's not until 1000 B.C. that Israel becomes a major player on the world scene. And that is when we see the rise of Saul, David, and Solomon, all names that you know. And it's especially during King David's 40-year tenure as leader of Israel that Israel becomes a strong military player on the world stage. But when David is actually, he's going to pass on and he's going to die, he is going to put his son Solomon in charge of everything. He's going to be the new king. And some of you know this already, what happens in Solomon's life? He lives a life, he's obviously the, the smartest man, the wisest man that has ever lived, but he compromises greatly, and God judges the Israelites because of that. You with me so far? All right. Next, when Solomon dies, Israel will be broken up into two kingdoms. And here's just a verse, we're not in Nehemiah yet, but here's a verse from 2 Kings 11 talking about Solomon. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And after this, this is history that I think we see this all the time. I don't know if you really know this. I wanted to put a map up here. You see, just like how many of you know, in American society, the, the, you know, the lowest point in our history has to be the Civil War, right? 1860s, you all remember that from history class? The Civil War, the North and the South, the South secedes from the Union. After Solomon dies, we have the same kind of issue going on in Israel. You see, Israel will break up. And you have on the top there, you have Israel. And you know the 12 tribes? 
Ten of those tribes will reside in Israel. Two of the tribes will go down south and they will be part of what is known as Judah. Amazing. This is where we, I mean, all through the Old Testament, you see apostasy. You see the people of God falling away and turning away from God. But here especially, it is not something that happens from without, an enemy from without. It's the enemy from within. And spiritually speaking, their heritage starts to crumble. Just like the walls, when we look at Nehemiah, are crumbling. There is a problem going on here. And Israel is divided. And I think we know what happens when you're divided. You are susceptible, you are vulnerable to attack. And then moving on from there, what happens? Interesting how things get a little chaotic when God judges Israel. There's a group of people in 722 BC. They are called the Assyrians. They will annihilate, they will eradicate the Israel in the north, those 10 tribes I told you about of Israel, they will be annihilated. They will be gone. Some of the individuals there from the north, they'll actually, they'll migrate and they'll go to the south and that's where they'll reside. But due to the fact of what is going on in Israel, they were vulnerable and the Assyrians will take them over. You're with me again. I have to keep asking you. No. Okay. I'll just keep going. Now, in the south, the land of Judah, all right, the southern kingdom, they will go on for a while until you all know this event, 586 B.C. You know the book of Daniel. How many of you know the name Nebuchadnezzar, right? You know Nebuchadnezzar? He is going to invade the southern kingdom of Judah, and that is called Babylonian captivity. They went to Babylon. They were taken. Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. You know those names. They were taken. They were captive. They took the best. They took the brightest. And they said, you're going to come here and you're going to live here. You're going to work from us. You're going to assimilate into our society. We're going to teach you how to become like us. Israel is in shambles. Well, shortly after that, again, making it really quick... The Persian Empire will ultimately, they will destroy the Assyrian Empire in the south again. We're in Judah. And luckily, not really luck, it's not a coincidence, God knows what he's doing. There is a king by the name of Cyrus in the Persian Empire. He will allow the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been destroyed By the Babylonians. You know what they did? They destroyed the temple of God. The temple of God was the house of God. They destroyed all the walls around Jerusalem. They destroyed all the fortified cities. They burned everything. There's fire. There's mass chaos. Think about what just happened in a place like Oklahoma. Think about a Katrina. Think about total, utter devastation. That is what Jerusalem will look like. But this Persian leader, Cyrus the virus, Cyrus says, listen, here's what we're going to do. I am going to allow you to go back. And there are three waves of three leaders that will lead people back to Jerusalem. They are they are attempting to rebuild everything that has been destroyed. And the last two, the second two are people that you have to know. The first one is Ezra. Another good name. He is a a scholar and he is a teacher. The second guy who will come 13 years after him, Nehemiah. None other than Nehemiah. What is their mission? They want to rebuild Jerusalem that has been devastated. 
9-11, same, they want to rebuild. They want to bring the glory of God back to Jerusalem. So that's where we are, again, giving you just a little, there's a lot more history involved in there, but sufficient for where we are going on our journey in this series, where the people of God are and where they're going to go. And interesting to note, we never, I, I don't think I've ever heard, maybe you preach sermon. I'm sorry. You probably preached sermons before on the book of Ezra. I never have. You probably have. The, now, there are these two characters. Ezra is the scholar and the teacher. He is a contemporary of Nehemiah. I said 13 years prior to this guy, Nehemiah, when he's going to go back, Ezra is there. He's the scholar. He's the teacher. Nehemiah, he's kind of the construction guy. He's got the hard hat on. He's the guy that deals with the mortar and the bricks. And why do I bring this up? Eugene Peterson, in the preface to the book of Nehemiah, it was wonderful. He has a a few paragraphs where he says, What has happened in this world that we separate into two categories, that which is sacred and that which is secular? He says, All throughout the Bible, you see people that God uses are fishermen, they're gardeners, they're tent makers. The list goes on and on, and God uses those people. He also uses people that are in ministry, clergy. This guy, Nehemiah, in the story, he is not a scholar. He's not a rabbi. He didn't get get schooled by anybody. He is just somebody that loves God. And friends, God is still looking for people today, normal, ordinary people to use. He doesn't just use the preachers. He doesn't just use the speakers. You have a vocation and you are strategically put in a place and a job. I don't care if you mop up the floor. I don't care what you do. You clean your house. You have a vocation and God has put you somewhere. Don't take it lightly. We do though. That's what we do. And here is Nehemiah. What is his job? The end, I'm starting really at the end. I'm moving around a little bit. In the first chapter of Nehemiah, the last verse, these are, by the way, these are like his memoirs. He is writing, like, how many of you journal? Yeah, about four or five people. That's good. That's what I figured. The rest of you, you're probably smart, right? You don't want anyone with the internet. You don't want anyone to know what you're, you know, writing. You're afraid that somebody's going to get it, figure out what you're writing, right? I, I understand that. He's journaling, though, here. That's what this book really is. He's journaling about what is going on. At least nine times in the book, he is going to lay out prayers. The whole first chapter is, is the longest of his prayers. And we see this man. What is his job? I love, he is the cupbearer. What is the cupbearer? He is somebody that is supposed to taste all of the wine that goes to the king. Now, there are foreigners that are there. The king, the man's, his name is Artaxerxes. Can I just call him Artie for the series? Do you mind? No one cares, right? So Artie's the king, and you have Nehemiah is the cupbearer. His job is not to taste the cuisine. I don't like that. That's not the best uh, Pinot Noir I've had. His job is not to taste the wine. His job is to make sure the wine is not poisoned. So there is the king sitting there, and there's Nehemiah. He's tasting the wine. If Nehemiah drops and falls to the ground and dies, well, I guess the wine was poisoned. Can I have somebody else bring me some wine? Let's get another cup there. His wife never had to ask him at the end of the day, hey, honey, how was work today? He was vertical. He was alive. It was a good day. That's what he does. That's his job. He is the cupbearer. But understand, it is a very prominent position in the ancient world. It is. 
He got to know the king really well. They trusted each other. He is a foreigner, but for some reason he rises to a place of prominence. It is also noteworthy that many scholars say that Nehemiah was actually somebody that was very handsome. Remember last series I told you Boaz probably looked like Homer Simpson? No, he probably looks like this guy Nehemiah is probably like a Denzel Washington. He's a handsome looking man. He's got everything going on. He's smart. He's, he's not like me. He's handy. He's got a, he's got a lot of you know, things going on. He's, he's a very talented man, and he's a cupbearer to the king. So everything is going well for this man. Why would you want to mess it? You're the cupbearer to the king. Life is really good. Why would you care what's going on in Jerusalem? Your family's being fed. Life is beautiful for you. You have a retirement package, assuming you don't die from drinking the wine. But life is really good. Why would you want to change anything? Everything ultimately changes, though, right at the outset of the book. And let's look there at the first verse. One and two, this is what it says, Not, Nehemiah speaking. It came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in, Shu, it's really Shusha, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. So where were they? Jerusalem. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So here he is, he is asking these, his brother, these other individuals, what can you tell me? What is the report from home? What is going on? How is the devastation? All right, and then three and four. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Oh gosh, how rich this is. Now, I don't have the time like I did in the last series to like stop and this in the Hebrew means I'm not going to have as much time to do that. But this is such a rich passage. And I want you to see this first. I thought this was kind of funny. Do you know how long this is after the walls have actually been burned down in Jerusalem? Get this. 141 years after that has happened, this man is wailing and mourning and crying as if it just happened. That would be akin to in our day. In case you didn't know, are you re- I have some really bad news for you. Are you ready? Is everyone, can you handle this? Can you handle the truth? All right. This would be like me saying, ladies and gentlemen, President Lincoln has been shot. President Lincoln has been shot by John Wilkes Booth. He died. He is not with us anymore. You'd be like, dude, what's wrong? You need to be institutionalized. That happened a long time ago, and I'm crying. I'm boy, oh my God, I love President Lincoln. I do love President Lincoln. If you want to have an argument about him being at the top of the list of presidents, bring it any day of the week. An amazing president, but that's what it would be like. Do you get this? Do you see this? Because you can't see it just reading the text. 141 years, so it's roughly like that, that the president's been killed. Commentators go, it seems a little late. Yeah, I would say so. Very late for this to be going on. So I ask you, because you're thinking this right now. So then why is he mourning and weeping for something that happened 140 plus years ago? If he knew this was going on, and I would say to you today something very important. 
I would say to you, yes, it happened 141 years ago, and he knew about it, but his whole perspective changed, and that God was moving on his heart, and God gave him the heart of Jesus for that city, Jerusalem. And you may say, he precedes Jesus. And I would say, no, Jesus is the God of the Bible. There is the eternal now. God is the God of yesterday, today, tomorrow. He's the God of everything. And God, I believe, he gave, God gave Nehemiah a spirit, a love for that city. Just like Jesus, when he weeps over Jerusalem, here is this man, Nehemiah. He is weeping over Jerusalem because he can't believe that everything has been torn down and the walls are destroyed. Oh, this man is amazing. How do you not love him? He is an incredible leader in the midst of incredible apathy. How many people were going on with their lives? He has new perspective. How many people are saying, this is all we've ever known. Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? That happened 140 years ago. Why would you care? This is the world you live in. You better accept it now. It's no different than today. You woke up today, and if there are young kids in here, you were born into a world that you think is normal, and I'm telling you, it is not normal according to what the Bible says. The world tells us certain things about how life is supposed to be, how you're supposed to look, what you're supposed to wear, what you're supposed to do with your time, what you're supposed to do with your money, and it's antithetical to the message of the gospel. It is the total opposite. We are to be a people that go against the grain and say we'll not go along with the rest of culture. No, this is not how things were. This is not how things should be. And ultimately, I look in the book of Revelation, this is not how things are ultimately going to be one day at the end. That's the biblical message. An apathy. How many people should, ha- should be in this book? How many people should have their own book like Nehemiah did? How many people saw what was going on and knew and said, you know what? I don't have time for that. I can't make a difference. There's no way that God can use me. I guarantee you we'll find out one day that there were other people during this exact time period that God wanted to use, but they didn't answer the call. This man says, I'll answer the bell. I'll put on my outfit. I'll get ready to go. You're going to see next week. There's going to be, a, there's going to be discrimination. There's going to be opposition. But he says, I don't care. I'll go in the midst of Jerusalem. I'll go in there because I know God is calling me to do so. Apathy. The church is apathetic today. There's, it's, it's all over the place. It's so prevalent. I read a great story. You all know Alexander Graham Bell. You all know the name Alexander Graham Bell. Well, Alexander Graham Bell is given credit with inventing the telegraph. But I would imagine there is not one person in this room that knows the name Elisha Gray. How many, anyone ever hear the name Elisha Gray? You have, George. I'm going to quiz you after church. I'm going to ask you extra questions that not part of my story. So Alexander Graham Bell is given credit with inventing the telegraph, right? Well, what is wild is that there was this man, Elisha Gray, who came up with the idea of the telegraph before Graham Bell. He has the idea two months before, this is a true story, go look it up, two months before Alexander Graham Bell get, you know, finishes all of his work on this, two months before, he has the idea, he realizes that sound can you know, travel through telegraph wire. Right? It takes him two months to write down his whole plan. Two months, he procrastinates. Eh, I'll get to it. 
got other things to do. He's chilling out, doesn't want to do it. Two months it takes him. After those two months, it, when he finally writes out the plan, get this. It takes him another four days after that to actually go down to the patent office and get a patent on the telegraph. Little did he know there was another man by the name of Alexander Graham Bell that beat him by two hours to the patent office. Two hours. You would know if he went there sooner, you'd know the name Elisha Graham. You wouldn't know Alexander Graham Bell. You know, I tell you a story like that because God is constantly putting vision in front of us. He's constantly giving us chances. And he's saying, who's going to grab hold of this opportunity? Who wants this opportunity? Because if you don't grab it, trust me, I'm going to get somebody else to take it. Somebody else will answer the call in their life. I will find somebody. There are myriads of people on this planet. I am not worried, but I'm giving you the opportunity of a lifetime. And here in this story, this man, Nehemiah, says, I will grab hold of that opportunity and I will not let go. I will be tenacious. I will persevere. I will do everything you want to do. And one day there'll be a guy in Middle Island who may name his kid after me. Woo. Nehemiah is moving to the top of the list. And I, you know what this is? What is this an example of his heart for Jerusalem? You know what this is? A lot of authors call it this. I don't even know who coined the phrase, but I love it. Holy discontent. Holy discontent. Something gnaws at them. You look at people from history, something gnaws inside of them that they know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And somebody has to rise up and make change. I think of centuries ago, I think of a William Wilberforce when he saw the institution of slavery in England and he said, something has to be done and I will sacrifice and I will give up my life. I think of women in the 1800s like Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I think of Susan B. Anthony and they said, we will fight for women's suffrage. We will fight for equality because that's what God intended for humanity. I think of somebody like a Bill Wilson, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA. He said, you know what? I know the devastation of what alcohol can do to me and to others. I will start a group that will help people. I think of Dr. Martin Luther King, who said, we will not deal with the discrimination. We will not be judged by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. And he preaches that message to millions. And he says, no longer there is a new day. Church, God is looking for a people that will rise up in this day, in this hour, and we will grab the mantle and we will move forward because things are not the way they're supposed to be. And what I love about examples, I, I just love examples like that. People that fight for justice. People that fight for what is right. People that fight for the heart of God. And you know what these individuals did? They exposed themselves to pain. Who does that in this world? Instead of extricating themselves and saying, you know what? I'm going to move away from, I don't want to look at that because that's what we do. I don't, I can't deal with that right now. I don't want to look at that. Let me move away. I don't want to live a life like that. These individuals said, you know what? I don't care what people think. I don't care what happens to me. I will go right in the midst of pain and suffering because there was one. Oh yes, there was one 2000 years ago who did the same. And they said, I will walk in his footsteps. Will you? And you, and you, will you walk in his footsteps? So I ask you right now, church, city on a hill, 
Is there something that is gnawing at you? What is gnawing at you? Because you know what this book is really saying? That the walls of Jerusalem that are broken down, that's a picture of our lives. And for many of us, the walls have been broken down. I'm sorry to say it. I'm going to be honest with you. They've been broken down for a long time. And you know what? We're like, that's the way life is. That's what happens to my family. This is what happens to my health. This is what happens with my job. Just the way life is. We live in America, 21st century. The economy's terrible. Oh, God, are you kidding me, James? It's just the real world. There's not a spiritual battle. And I would say you are out of your mind. You were born into a life and death battle. We can't say it enough. We should say it every single Sunday. But the naivety with which we live with is staggering. A battle for your lives. There is an enemy that wants to take you out. And he wants to discourage you. I sense there's discouragement in the room right now. You know how much discouragement? I feel it as the preacher. I can tell you what's going on. I stand up here. Within two minutes, I can tell you everything that's going on. And there's a spirit of depression. There's a spirit of apathy in the room right now. It's much bigger than me. It's much bigger than us. There's a spiritual battle that's going on right now. We can't see. Oh, but it's real. And you have the choice, like the matrix. Boop, boop. Which one are you taking? Are you taking the red pill? Or are you taking the blue pill? Oh, you can take the... I don't know which pill. Jamal, which pill is it? The, put you to sleep. <laughs> you can take the blue pill and you'll go to sleep. I love that scene, right? Isn't that one of the greatest scenes? And you'll, you'll wake up in your bed and you, know, you, you won't know anything and you'll go back to your happy little life. You can do that if you want. But you're an eternal being and you're going to go on forever and ever and ever. And there will be regret. And you'll look back and say, why didn't I take the red pill? Why didn't I enter into the battle? God, you were talking to me. You were calling me. There were things that were gnawing at me that you put in my spirit through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just said, whatever. Oh, is this not, you don't want to hear this today? It's the message. I'm so, it's nice now. Like I've been doing this long enough. You just like, you preach what you're supposed to preach. You know, you just get the message and you, and you preach it. I'm preaching it myself. <laughs> so the second, the second part of this that, that is really interesting is you see this urgent prayer. Now, what is wild? I had to stop here. This is wild. He's, he, he's praying. Do you know how long he's praying? We know from later on, second chapter. Four months. Four months. He is praying before anything comes to fruition, before anything happens. He is praying for four months. Now, here's where I have to stop. You don't know Nehemiah that well yet. By the end, you're going to be like, we're BFFs. You know him real well. Not yet. So, uh, Dallas Willard, he's the one I read this first. And God rest his soul. You know I've quoted and, and adore and venerate Dallas Willard. He went on to be with the Lord some time ago. Some of you are like, Dallas who? Dallas, Texas? I don't know what you're talking about. But a great Christian writer, philosopher that I, I just, I could, I could go on and on about him. And he once said, he said, you know what, Christian, Christians, you, you get divided up into two camps. And I guess just people in general. There are what are known as activists and there are contemplatives, right? And I want you to see who Nehemiah is. An activist is somebody that doesn't have patience, right? You just like full bore, all out, ah, let's go. What's the, what's the task? What do I have to do, right? Somebody that is a contemplative, I'm kind of both. And again, I'm just like speaking like, you really want to hear this? But I'm kind of a contemplative uh, and some of you, you relate, to, you know, you tell me for yourselves, not after the meeting. I don't have time for that, but you can tell me at some point in the future. 
A contemplative is somebody that like ruminates on things. They just want to think. That's me sometimes. I just want to think recreationally. I just want to think about everything. She, I get in trouble all the time. Can you stop thinking? Can you shut your mind down? Oh, no, no. I want to think all the time. So that is a contemplative. You want to think on things. You're patient, all right? If a contemplative says that they're going to call you, they're going to, that means they're going to call you before they die. If an activist says they're going to call you, they're going to call you that day. Right? There's a huge difference between these two camps. Now, there is a passage later on. Look at this. This is 1325. You tell me what type of person Nehemiah is. Is he an activist or a contemplative? Now, this is interactive. I want you to tell me. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughter as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. What is he? He is a racehorse. He is somebody, he is not a contemplative. He is an activist. And there was apostasy, things that were going on. People, Israelites were marrying people from another race. And he's like, we can't have this. So to see in the story, in the prior passage, that he is able to stop and actually pray to God for four months is extraordinary. He is an amazing, amazing man. How about you? How's your prayer life? Just us. No one else is here. <laughs> Tell me. You're on the couch, right? I'm just talking. How you doing? How's your prayer life? Is it a formal thing that you have to wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, you know, I got to do my, my, my devotional? Or is it something that you really, it could be whenever, that you just look up to the heavens like Nehemiah did. And you say, God, this is what's going on in my life. And I need you right now. I need the power of your spirit. How's that going? Because I know for me, a lot of times, and my parents can attest to this, I'm full bore. I'm like Nehemiah. And I want to go and I have to stop and pull back sometimes and pray. I'm like, whoa, I need to slow down. How about you, though? How is your prayer life? How about practicing his presence, whatever is going on, saying, you know what, God? I really want to slow down. I want to feel you. I want to experience. I want to live in the eternal now. I want to live with you right now in every moment, every sec. However, Lord, you make that happen as you can do. It's something we don't have to try. It's, Lord, I just want to be led by your spirit. I want to know you better. I want to look to you in all the big and little things. It doesn't matter how seemingly trivial they are. I want to trust you in them. So how's that going? Because for this man, he's pretty amazing. And then you go into 1-6 six and 7. And this is, Nehemiah, this is his prayer, right? We're not going to look at the whole prayer. This is the only part of the prayer. I'm going to move to the second chapter after this. I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those you love, you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray to you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Again, just unbelievably rich, the whole text. But here is a man. You know what I love about him? There is something that is bigger than himself. You know what in this world, too? Isn't it easy for us to be self-centered? How many of you find, right, it's so easy to be self-centered? And we just think about ourselves. What's going on in my little world? What do I have to do after church? And it's so easy to forget about other people. This man is involved in something that is bigger than himself. And I would say we as Christians need to be involved in things that are bigger than ourselves that we cannot do in our own power. How's that going in your life? 
Are you invested in things that are bigger than you and you have to look to the heavens? You have to look to God for his power and his strength. Here is a man that says, you know what, too? It's not just about me and my sin. It's collectively, it's the, the sin of this community. And friends, when you look at history, oh, I, I, I could go off on this. But when you look at the great movements in American history, the first, second great awakening, it was people like the Whitfields and the Edwards and the Finneys that said, it's not just my sin. They were broken by the sin of everyone together. When God moves on a people, a people repent and they get on their faces and they pray. You know what hurts as a preacher? You know what's hard as a preacher? Let me be honest with you. What's hard is sometimes you get to feel a little bit and a tiny piece of the pain of what God deals with with people. That you stand up, and my mom can attest to this, you stand up as a preacher and you preach message and you preach message after message after message and you preach to people sometimes that don't want to hear those messages. And people that say, I don't really want God. I'll give you my, I'll come to church once in a while. Don't ask me to get involved in anything. I don't want to have that kind of relationship. It's not for me. And God is here in this kind of story and he's looking for people. Look, where is, is there somebody that will get on their face and pray? Is there somebody like a John Wesley who actually wore out the wood floor in England in his house because every single day he would pray? Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, the same kind of thing. Where are the Taylors? Where are the Wesleys? Where are the Nehemiahs? That's the pain that I get as a preacher. I don't want to carry it. I don't want it to, I don't want to live with it, but I do. And I care deeply about you, not just my soul, but your soul. And there's more. I'm just going to preach and not stop. That's what I'm talking about. All right, let's have a little fun here. As we, I'm, I'm going to move towards a closing. No, probably not. <laughs> I just I got you excited there. Second chapter, you ready? Okay. And it came to pass. Are you excited? No, but I am. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artie, When wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Put the brakes on. Did you know you could lose your life if you were ever in the presence of the king and you were not happy? You were risking your life. You've probably read the text. Oh, what? He's sad. What the guy? He should be sad. Look what's going on in Jerusalem. No, no, no. How many of you have a boss and you go into work? You'll go in tomorrow. Your boss says, hey, how was your weekend? How was everything? Your weekend could have been terrible. You could have like gotten a car accident. There could have been a flood in your house, something. You don't say, you know, my weekend was terrible. My weekend was, you're like, hey, you know what? My weekend was great. And I'm ready to rock and roll today. I'm ready to get in my cubicle, get behind that computer. I'm ready to just get after it today. What are we doing? Team, I love this job. You could hate it. I want to work 70 hours this week. I don't want to work 40, 50. I want to work more. You lie. This man is before the king, the one that is exalted, the one that is controlling everything. And he's not supposed to have a sad face, but he's honest and he's transparent and he's risking his life. Where was I? Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? I guess he's a doctor, too. This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Smart move. Why should my face not be said when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Is there a braver person that we know of in the Bible here for a man to show what is really going on on the inside? 
You see, he said he's going before the king and he's serving him his wine, but he realizes that something is going on miles and miles away and he realizes that people need to know this. He's going before a king that doesn't believe in his God. He is basically just somebody, he is, uh, I don't know, he's like secret service or he's like a janitor, whatever you want to say. He is brazen enough to go up to the king and say, look, there is something going on and I know you may not like this, but I don't care because there's something going on inside of me that I have to get off my chest. And if I perish like Esther, I perish, but I'm going to go down with the ship and I'm going to trust you, God. You know what's wild about this? In Ezra chapter four, I told you they go hand in hand in the Jewish Bible, Jewish scriptures. They're one book, Nehemiah and Ezra. They're not here in our Bible, but you have, you can't read one with really, without reading the other. So in Ezra four, you know, what we find out King Artie had decreed that nobody was to go back to Jerusalem before this. Here is crazy Nehemiah. He's out of his mind. I don't know if he's on meds or something. He's crazy, right? Because he goes in knowing that the, the king, the king of everything, the king has decreed that nobody is to go back and rebuild in Jerusalem. And that's a smart move. If you're the king and you, you're ruling, right? Isn't that a smart move? You don't want people to go back and rebuild the temple, they don't, they don't worship your God. You don't care about them. You want to keep them oppressed as much as you can. You want to keep them down. He goes into the king knowing this stuff. Are you kidding me? And then he, I love this. He sends up one last prayer. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Just pause right there. He's in with the king. His life is on the line. He's risking his life but he's willing to pray. He knows he has to pray to God before anything can happen. I love that. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Out of his mind. Now, understand this too. Can I say something about us as work as Christians? Can I, as a pastor, can I just say a couple things that kind of irk me? What he's really saying is here, you know me, Artie. Can I, can I call you Artie? You know, I never have before. Can we kind of sit down? Can I take my, you know, cupbearer hat off? Can we just talk man to man? Yeah, sure. You know that didn't happen, but let's just pretend it did. So they sit down, right? And they're talking. And he's like, listen, Artie, you know I love you. And I know you trust me. We trust each other. And I've worked really hard for you here. I haven't put tracks in the bathroom at work. I haven't sent, uh, you know, emails, like church emails and to people that I think are funny and they don't understand. Some people, they, they do that. I mean, there was somebody years ago, and I have to say it. There was somebody years ago I, that was a member of our church a long time ago. And he'd go to his job, and every single person at his job hated him because he'd constantly go around and shove the Bible down their throats. And he thought that's what the gospel was, and he thought that's what his job was. Well, I would tell you from this story, this character, he preached without using words. And this king, he found favor in the king's sight because the king saw him probably praying. He saw him as a real man of character and integrity, impeccable character. And he said, you know what? This guy is pretty amazing. And after this, it's because of that that he says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what you say. I'm going to do what you actually ask. So it would be akin to in our day. Can you imagine a secret service agent that is in the White House right now. Right now, President Obama. Say he's in the Oval Office right now. And he gets up out of the Oval Office and there's a Secret Service agent outside. And the President walks outside the door and he sees the agent and he's like, hey, 
what's, are you all right? Why the down face? What's wrong with you today? You all right? Come on in. Come on inside. Let's sit down and talk. Yeah, you know, Mr. President, I just got to tell you, um, I know you made a decree about your, your foreign policy, but I think you're going to have to change it. Um, you know, what, what's going on in Israel right now, I think it's a little jacked up, um, and I want to help you. I know I'm one of your Secret Service agents, but here's what I think you really need to do. Here's what you should do. And the President of the United States, listening to a Secret Service agent, and he says, you know what? I think you're actually you're right. Let's do what you say. Let's do it. Let's put it into action. That's what this is kind of like. Crazy. How would this happen? God. But God, that this man finds favor with God. Here is a man, we don't, we, he, it's basically like him saying, we don't worship the same God. You know I've done the good job. Lord, I mean, a king, you have to let me go do this. You have to trust me here. Please, you have to trust me. And the other thing too is, I mean, he does this. Look who he does this in front of. He does it in front of the queen. Do you know the queen is there sitting there? It's one thing to kind of diss the king about his foreign policy, but when you do it in front of the queen too, that's even crazier, right? That the queen is sitting there listening to this. Imagine that. Like, no, you didn't, Nehemiah. You didn't just say that, did you? Yeah, I did. Yep, yep. What are you going to do about it? God's with me. Crazy. He's out of his mind, and I love it, and I love him. I promise we're really closing now. And then this, this request is, is really crazy, too. Where is my clicker? The last couple of verses here. Uh, the king said to me, I, I, I got ahead of myself. The queen also sitting beside her, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Do you know how long we ultimately, it doesn't say it here, do you know how long he's going to be gone? Twelve years. Imagine you going into your, off, your boss's office. Hey, um, is there any way I could take a leave? I need a leave of absence. Um, how long are you going to be gone? You need a week or two? You need some vacation? You have some vacation time accumulated? Yeah, I'm going to be gone for 12 years. You may be dead. Um, you may not be around, but I need you to let me go to this place. Not only that, I'm going to need in seven and eight, like you see here and, and moving on from there, I'm going to need the best wood that you have. Like in your private forest, like I'm going to kind of need all that stuff. It's going to have to be free of charge too. Don't try to charge me for this stuff. Like, I have some stuff to do, and you're going to help me. Is that all right? How brazen this guy is. Look what it says here. It says, the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and a litter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. It's kind of like, like a Lord of the Rings kind of feel, like as you read it. To me, it is. That you must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertain to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Wow. (laughs) Again, friends, he got involved in something that was bigger than himself. And you know what? This was just a mortal. This was just a man, King Artaxerxes. We have a real king. We have the king of kings and the Lord of lords that we can go to. And I'm asking you, Are you as brazen as Nehemiah is? As you come to this table today, as we kick off this series, what are you asking God for? You better be asking for things that are bigger than yourself. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above what you ask or think. That's what this table is. It's you asking him and believing that he is able to do more than you think or know. And I look at your faces and you don't believe it. And you know what? That's a shame. That's a shame. You need, and if you don't have that kind of faith, that's fine. You ask him for that as you come to the table. You say, God, 
that's not me. I don't have that. I don't know what he's talking about right now. You ask him and say, Lord, give me that kind of faith to believe for my family, for my job, for my health, whatever it is. That's what I'm coming up for. I'm coming up with things. I'm bringing things to the table. I'm coming to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm coming to the guy that still heals. He, st- he still does miracles. He's still in the miracle working business, despite what that culture out there tells us, despite what the leading atheists and agnostics say. I believe in a God who still sees, hears, loves, knows who you are, knows your name, knows your address, loves you unconditionally. Lord, Lord, I ask that we as a people, Lord, you would show us first the areas in our lives that the walls are broken down. You would show us what needs to be rebuilt. And then you would take our eyes even off ourself. And you would say, wow, what about this community? Where are you calling us, city on a hill, community church? What can we do and to play our part? Because your story is unfolding right now. Your story is unfolding. It's a great tapestry. And Lord, we are a little speck. We are a little dot. But oh, may we be faithful with what we're doing, just like Nehemiah was. He had no idea that he was going to be a book in the Bible. He had no idea that thousands of years later, people would be talking about his story and his exploits. But we are here today. And who knows what will happen one day in heaven if there are just one person in here that catches a glimpse of this that catches just a grain of this and actually believes you are who you are and who you said you are and that they're going to put their faith, hope, trust in you. Oh God, you are a big God. May you eradicate the notions that you're just this aloof God that sits in the heavens and you don't really care about the affairs of men on earth. Oh, you care and you see and you're looking for a bride that will be spotless. May it be, Lord. May it be in this day. Give us the faith. Use us, Lord, and use this series in all of our lives. Shape us, rearrange us, do what you have to do, as only you can. Amen. Ushers. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.